morning. We're in the fifth week of our series on conversations with Jesus taken from the Gospel of John. The first week we talked about the overall purpose for John writing this Gospel, which really was so that you would believe and that in believing have eternal life and specifically to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And each of the conversations afterwards related to that theme. The, the first, uh, the second week actually, we had Nicodemus, who was a Jewish leader, uh, and he came to Jesus secretly to ask the question about, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus talked about being born again. And then the second week, or the third week, we talked about the woman at the well, who was really on the opposite side of Nicodemus. She was an outcast, religiously and socially and morally. And she learned from Jesus about how to get the living water. And then last week, uh, Laura talked about how those who had experienced the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 were seeking more of that bread. And Jesus turned that on them and said, no, what you really need is bread from heaven. And Jesus talked about how you need to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And this week, we're going to look at one of the shortest conversations of our series. In fact, it's basically three statements and two questions. But before we get into that, we have to deal with a problem. Now, if you're looking in your Bibles, you probably see this section bracketed and then some kind of statement either down in the appendices or, or uh, right there in the text. And, and this is what the NIV says. It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53, through, uh, 53 8 through 11, A few manuscripts include it, it says, in other parts or other places within the scripture. And and I've had many people in the past ask me, well, what does that mean? What is that really talking about? So we're going to have to do a very quick um, introduction to biblical transmission. How did we get the Bible? The Bible, of course, we don't have any of the original copies. You know, I I just went through uh, the garage and I was going through some of my old uh, schoolwork that I did 20, 30 years ago, and much of the papers had yellowed and started falling apart. You can imagine, looking at that paperwork from hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, that you you just wouldn't have some of that original stuff. And so here are some examples of some of the manuscripts that we have, especially the one in the the left-hand side, the upper left-hand side, is actually a little segment from the Gospel of John, uh, and it's dated about 125 A.D., And then just below that, you could see a parchment, which was really written on animal skins. And it wasn't until about 350 or so when you had the the kind of the codex, the one that's at the bottom right, which is looking a lot like our books that we have nowadays. And that is when we start to see really entire sections of the scripture, especially the New Testament that were written out there. But from 125 to the 350, we have all kinds of different manuscripts. And what that note just says is that when we find some of the earliest ones, even though they're just snippets, we're we're not finding this section of scripture there. It seems like it's later that we see some of these coming out. And therefore, some people believe that maybe this wasn't originally written by John and it was added later. Others believe that, yes, it was there. It's just that some of the early manuscripts, they didn't necessarily include everything in there. And it, was, it took time before we could see all of the scriptures being put together. So there, there's a lot of, of latitude in between. But basically, 
it's by looking at all the manuscripts that we have that we, we come to the conclusion that, that it's possible that this might not have been in the original. Now, when it comes to ancient manuscripts, there's actually people that study these, these kinds of things. I, I know they get paid for it and everything. And even some who are secular um, um, teachers who want to look at ancient manuscripts and they look at the Bible. And when you look at certain ones of these that are around the same time period as the New Testament, you see that, that Julius Caesar's Galactic Wars, we found 10 copies, and, but the first one we find around the 10th century. That another one, Histories and Annuals, we have two copies from the 8th and 10th century. And yet, those who study such things believe that the, that text that they have really is indicative of what was really written. When it comes to the New Testament, we have much, much more. In fact, there's 25, over 25,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament, starting with that little fragment at 125 and then moving on from there. And in fact, there's all kinds of quotations that are done by the early church fathers. So there's over 86,000 quotations that different people had written down that we have all occurring before 325. So what we want to understand is that, that what we have here, what the scripture we have here, we have great confidence that, that we have, for the most part, exactly what was written by the original author. So we can have that assurity in there. And, and there are some arguments given for inclusion, even though probably a lot of the uh, theologians out there are starting to, to think that maybe this wasn't included in there. But we do have this included in St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which was a codex uh, from around AD 382 or 383. And therefore, it had to exist before that time period. We see it alluded to by other people, at least by 370. And St. Augustine, actually, who was a bishop of Hippo, said he believed actually it was in the original, but it was taken out by certain people because of the teaching that was in there. Now, you, ha you have to take that with a little bit of grain of salt, but you can see that, that we have people across the spectrum. And what I want us to, to really do is to see that, that this text really fits well within the context of where John has it as well as the teaching that's there is very consistent with John's purpose and with other scriptures that we find. In fact, some people point to this verse in John 21, 25, where it says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And there was many of the stories that, of things that occurred there that were handed down orally rather than being written down. And so some say that, well, even if it wasn't there, they believe it's a true story that was brought down by oral tradition. And again, it's really a, a matter of fact of saying, was this scripture where we can give it the same inerrancy that we do the rest of it or not? And I'm going to leave that up to you. You can investigate that on your own. But what I want us to see is that this section that we're going to talk about fits so well into what is occurring here in the Gospel of John. So I want to move to our text, but I'm going to read one verse first. The word is then. Well, then what? Well, we want to look backwards, starting with last week's sermon. And if you recall, in John 6, that's where Jesus gave his discourse on the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. And Jesus gave a teaching that was really hard for many of the disciples to hold on to. And he said, basically, if you want to be part of me, part of what God is doing, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, that sounds a lot like cannibalism, which would be really against all the Jewish traditions, especially the food traditions. 
And, and some of the disciples, not the 12, but others who were following Jesus said, this is too hard. And they stopped following him. Now, the Jewish leaders have been looking for ways to get rid of Jesus for quite some time. He was a thorn in their flesh. He was teaching things and especially even challenging them in their teachings. And they were trying to find a way, how do we get rid of this Jesus who's in our way and, and taking our power? And so when this occurred, it seemed like it emboldened the Jewish leaders to, to proceed with getting rid of Jesus. We're going to look at the very first part of chapter 7 for a moment at its opening. And, and if you have the U version, you'll see that I included starting in verse 2. But I want to start really reading verse 1. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 in chapter 7 of John. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. You see, this was one of those feasts that most Jews would try to get to, going down to Jerusalem area, and they would pitch tents. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. It, it was reminiscent of their wandering in the desert as God was going to bring them into the promised land. And his brothers might have been getting ready for it, and they saw that Jesus wasn't. And they said, hey, hey, if you want to be this great big teacher, this big public figure, you should be going down there. Maybe it's a, a means to chide him, but also there's a possibility that they were aware of the Jewish leader's plans and thought maybe this is something that uh, he needs to experience in order to wake up from his delusions. And anyways, and in case, his brothers said did not believe in him. And then Jesus, after maybe they left, went down later in secret. And then in the middle of this feast, he started teaching again. And he started teaching and people started going, wow, this is the one that the Jews are trying to get. And wow, listen to his teaching. And I want to start reading at verse 40 to the end of that chapter. He says, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem? the town where David lived. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own member, number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So here we see Nicodemus again. Remember, he, he approached Jesus at night to ask those questions, and he seemed to be wanting to find a way to defend them in the midst of his brothers who definitely were out to get him. And you see, in this context, I think that the, 
story that we're about to tell makes perfect sense because the Pharisees thought that after that bread of life discourse, hey, he's losing all these followers. We have an opportunity to get rid of him. He won't have as much support within the people. But then after he taught and even the temple guards who were going there to arrest him, they just couldn't pull the trigger. They couldn't make the arrest because his teaching was so different. And so the Pharisees needed to find another way to separate more of Jesus' support so they could do what he wanted to do. And that's where we come with our text here. In John 7, starting with the last verse in John up through 8. Then they all went home. So after they tried to arrest him and it didn't work out, they just said, oh, forget it. Let's get out of here for right now. He said, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And this was one of Jesus' favorite places to go to, to get away from things and to spend time with his father. And then it says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So he's basically, what he was doing the day before, he's now continuing on during this feast. And then it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? What do you say? Now, of course, this is part of the law. If we look, first of all, in Leviticus 20.10, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, With the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. In Deuteronomy 22.22, it says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die, you must purge the evil from Israel. But you see, the question that they were asking Jesus, hey, what do you think, wasn't there because they needed more information, It wasn't there because they respected Jesus and they wanted his approval. It says in verse 6, the first part of verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. In other words, whichever answer he might give, they could find a way to twist that so that he he could basically be arrested, that he, he would lose his support or more of his support, and now they would have that opportunity that they've been looking for. Now, this isn't an unusual event that Jesus is being put in a trap. In fact, the other Gospels talk quite a bit about that also. We have this verse in Matthew 19.3. It says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So again, they were asking him one of the questions about their own law to see if whichever way he goes on this, maybe we can use it and twist it So we can get rid of Jesus. We can get rid of some of his support that's there. And then in Matthew 22, 17 through 18, it says, Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, this was a really hard issue for Israel because they were being under the Roman control and they didn't want to have to pay these taxes to a foreign government. They wanted control of their own country. And so again, this was one of those things, that a political question that could get Jesus in quite a bit of hot water. But Jesus knows this. And he even says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? 
And then in Matthew 22, 35 through 36, it says, One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, we could all give opinions about you know, what the greatest of something is. But again, he was trying to test them or trap them in the respect of whichever one that Jesus picked. He said, well, what about this one? And so they would have a grounds for coming against him and maybe even finding ways to, to help him lose his popular support, but also a charge that they might be able to bring before the Sanhedrin. But Jesus knew very well what they were about to do. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him. And then Jesus responds to that question in an unusual way. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So he's got this opportunity to answer this question. Well, what should we do with this woman? And there's a lot of tension there. And there's a lot of emotion going on there. And instead of relating to them or even calling them out for this testing, he just goes down to the ground and starts to draw on the ground. I mean, as a kid, didn't you used to do that sometimes? You get bored and you just kind of sit in there and you're, you're just drawing in the ground. If you hear some sermons and you, you watch or listen to some commentaries or read some commentaries, some people think they actually know what Jesus is writing in the dirt. Now, I don't know how they know that. I'm not that old. My kids might think I'm really old, but I'm not that old. I don't know what he wrote. But basically, I think Jesus was just trying to break the tension, to pause so they could hear what he was about to say. So he wrote in the ground with his finger. Now, probably he got a little bit of peace. They probably are just going, okay, what's he doing? And they're just kind of, Thinking, But then they, they didn't get an answer, so they start to ask him again. Well, Jesus, what is it? Well, I mean, what should we do? What, what do you think? So they kept questioning him. Then he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped on the ground and started to ride on the ground. You know, you see what Jesus just did there? They were focused on this woman and her sin. And instead, Jesus wanted them to focus on themselves. Especially for the fact that they were using this opportunity to trap Jesus. In fact, they knew they were in sin because they were violating the very scripture that they were saying they were trying to fulfill. Because remember, the scripture says, if you find the adulterous situation, you bring what? The man and the woman in front of the court, and you then have to purge the sin that's there. They didn't do that. Somehow, this seemed to be a setup. You remember, they just the day before were frustrated. They're trying to find a setup. They probably, this is something they just put together, and they quickly found a way to do this. I don't know if they set this woman up somehow, but in any case, they didn't follow the very law that they were talking about. And there also probably was a problem because in that time period, they could not actually have the corporal punishment like that without the Romans giving permission. Remember when Jesus finally was, was uh, arrested, not only did he have to go between the, uh, before the Jewish authorities, but he had to go before the Roman authorities. And in fact, his execution wasn't in the Jewish style. It was the Romans who executed him on the cross. And it was soldiers from Rome that were present at that point in time. So 
in other words, what Jesus basically did was call their bluff and then focus it back on them. Why are you doing this? Look inside of your own heart. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, many people say, well, why do you think it might be the older people who go away first? Well, they might be the ones that, were, that put this plot together and realized that they had lost it. But they also were probably the first ones to recognize, yeah, there's a problem here, and uh, maybe there's a problem with me. I need to go away. The younger men might have still been hoping that there was going to be some excitement there, and eventually they leave too. And there's Jesus, this, this tense moment that was happening here. This, this excitement that was going on there now is just perfectly calm with just him and the woman. And then Jesus, after giving one statement already, now makes his next few statements. So Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replied, No one, sir. And then Jesus says, Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Again, look at how short this conversation is. And yet how meaty it is. And, and you can see that maybe when, when uh, it was said, oh, this might have been in the scriptures, but it was taken out because there's a group of people that didn't like its message. This might be the message they didn't like. That they say, wait a minute. She is guilty, and yet she didn't receive any punishment. In fact, it almost seems like you can do whatever you want to do. But that's not the message here at all. In fact, Jesus says, there's no condemnation. Now go and change the life that you had there. But Jesus knew something else that no one around at that point knew. For just in a few weeks, that sin was going to be paid for. And it was going to be paid for with a death. And it would be Jesus' death. Because he came to give his life as an atonement for many. He came to pay the penalty of all of those sins. And so the sin of the woman wasn't going unpunished. Because Jesus was taking on that punishment. And because of that. There's an opportunity then to change one's life and to live in a wholly separate way because of the resources that God provides, which we know is not only the church, our brothers and sisters, but the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Now, again, some have used both the original verse that, or uh, sentence that they, Jesus said to the accusers, hey, he is without sin cast the first stone and what Jesus says here to say wait wait I then don't have the ability or, or the right to actually tell my brother or sister that they're in the wrong because I've got sin in me that I haven't dealt with I can never be in a position where I don't have something that is wrong that I have to deal with so I guess I just better keep my mouth quiet and not say anything or hey Jesus let that sin go by. Maybe I shouldn't be so uptight. Maybe I should just not worry about other people, but only worry about myself. 
But when you look at the rest of Scripture, that's not at all what's being taught, and that's not really what Jesus is teaching. If we go back to John chapter 1, we talked about this, these two verses. For the law was given through Moses. Remember, the law that they were trying to ask Jesus to comment on was the law about adultery. This is the law that came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A whole different thing. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In other words, what Jesus did was bring God's grace and God's truth so that we could see who God really is. And that was his purpose. John says, hey, Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that he could call the world to righteousness so that he could, he could pay for the sin and then he could open up a way where we could have a relationship with God and change our lives having that living water that's in us. That is its purpose. And see, this story fits perfectly with John's purpose in here that it's not all about truth or condemnation or the law. There's also the element of grace. And Jesus' accusers, or the accuser of the woman, wanted Jesus to answer one way or the other. If he answered, hey, yes, it says stone her, go ahead and do it, he would have lost a lot of the popular uh, accolades that he had. And he also might be guilty before the Romans of violating their stipulations as far as what it takes for someone to be condemned. But if he said, no, 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 um, let's give her some grace, they could point to, hey, Jesus, he's against the law. And they could divide more the people who still were following Jesus so they would have an opportunity to get rid of him. And yet Jesus shows that there's another option. The option is grace and truth. Grace and truth. Because that's what Jesus brought. It comes through him. Now, I I do want to show you some scriptures that really talk about what do we do when we see a brother or sister that has has walked off the path and is struggling or or involved greatly with sin. What, What do we do about it? Even though we might have sin in our lives, it doesn't mean that we just let it go on. There's actually something that Scripture tells us we need to do. Some think of Paul as being kind of this hard line, uh, law and order kind of guy, right? In fact, in in Corinthians, he says, hey, you know, you guys are complaining because when I write to you, you know, I'm just, I'm laying down the law. But when you see me in person, you know, I'm, I'm not really like that, you know. He says in 2 Thessalonians, though, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. So there's the law and order guy, right? It says, do not associate with them. Why? In order that they might feel ashamed. Yet, it says, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that when you see a brother and sister that's involved in in sin, that's not following the way, You need to use whatever method necessary to help them to realize their situation so they can be restored. And you don't do it with a, oh, look at you, you're so bad kind of attitude. You're doing it with the attitude that you want them reconciled to the body of Christ. He says what seems to be a little bit kinder in in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
In other words, what we really are is that we're following that same pattern that Jesus showed, that grace and truth, so that we can help people to be restored. We're all going to fall. We're all going to have difficulties and problems. And if it's a one-and-done kind of situation, who's going to be left? No one. I remember an old friend's episode that I saw a piece of the other day, and it basically... Somebody in, in the group had, had made a mistake and done something wrong to somebody, and they figured, well, it's just all over. And they said, hey, if it was the first opportunity that you did something wrong, that you break a relationship, you'd never have a relationship that lasts more than a few months. And he said, oh, that explains it. You see, in our situation, we have to constantly forgive and bring each other back because we're all going to have that, that time of stumbling, of getting the dirt on our feet. But our job, or part of our job as fellow brothers and sisters is to help those people to become restored and to do it in a gentle and loving way because our our ultimate aim isn't to show that we're better than them, but our ultimate aim is that we're all in the same boat and we want to be followers of Christ. Now James, in his book, now remember James was the brother of Jesus who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And we saw earlier on that he was one of the brothers that basically was taunting Jesus, possibly even wanting him to go off to be arrested. And, and then he finally realized after the resurrection of who Jesus really was and became restored, not just to his brother, but to his Savior. And he says this in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander far from, or from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You see, part of our role and responsibility as followers of Christ is to bring reconciliation between the people that God has created and God himself. And that could be people who never had a relationship with God, who weren't Christians, but also could be our fellow brothers and sisters who have gone through a difficult time and maybe have wandered away. The the same responsibility exists for us. We're to be reconcilers. We're to be those who help people come back to the way. And we're doing that in the same manner that Jesus did, with grace and with truth. So you see, we are part of the ministry that Jesus started Jesus came, or grace and truth came through Jesus, and now that same grace and truth will come through us as followers of Christ. And it's our responsibility, again, to help those who are far from God, who are lost, to understand who God is and to bring them over to our brothers and sisters who are going through difficult times to help them be reconciled to God. And even for ourselves, to reconcile ourselves to God as he reveals to us the sins that are still left in our lives. This is the ministry that we need to do. And I just want to say, if you are someone who's, who's exploring this, this crazy thing called the Bible, and we're trying to figure out, is this true? You know, is this really how I get to God? I just encourage you to keep searching the scriptures. Keep talking to your friend or your family members who are Christians so that you can see the truth of who God is and you can be reconciled to him through grace and truth. If right now you're, you're going through a struggle in your life and maybe you, you've rejected God a little bit, you've, you've gone your own way and, and now God's calling you back, surrender to him. Accept his grace and the truth of who you can really be.
And for all of us, let us be those who are seeking the lost so that they can find their way back to the Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that we were not left in our sin, but that you sent your very own Son to die and pay the penalty of our sins so that now we can walk in the light. We can now walk with our Savior and we can be reconciled to you forever. Father, reveal to us those areas that we still need to surrender to you. Reveal to us those people around us who are hurting that you want us to reach out to. So again, we can perform the very ministry you've called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.